I learned uh, recently of a conversation between a uh, rancher from Texas and a farmer from Virginia. It apparently happened at a, an agricultural conference. Uh, the two of them met over a cup of coffee and were discussing the scale of their operations. The rancher said, "Why, well, when I get in my car when the sun comes up and drive in a straight line, I won't have got to the end of my property before the sun goes down. And the Virginian said, I know exactly what you mean. I used to have a car like that myself. <laughs> All depends on your perspective, doesn't it? like so much in life. Today's gospel conflates two uh, stories about Jesus, um, both somewhat familiar. Uh, Jesus returns to his hometown and, um, uh, and, and uh, is not uh, honored in the way that he was elsewhere. It contains the familiar aphorism, a prophet is not without honor except at home. We talked last week a little bit about uh, expectations around family and one's identity being totally uh, uh, involved with one's family of origin in, in uh, ancient days. And, and that's clearly uh, described here because the townspeople say, isn't this, this, this is the carpenter's son. He's a car what does he know? He's a carpenter. And we, his, his family, we know his family. So he can't be anything other than what his family makes him. And of course, he was far more than that. The other story is uh, the sending of the 12. The, uh, Jesus turns disciples into apostles, disciples, students, apostles, those, those sent. And, and, uh, uh, and he sends them out into the villages around two by two to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Um, and, and apparently, some receive him well and some do not. And, it, and this passage contains the uh, interesting little figure of speech of if they don't if they don't like you, kick the dust off your feet and move on. The, I guess the implication is um, if if uh, if they don't if they don't like you, then you don't have to like them. You can just leave their town's dust at, in their town. So um, the fact that these two stories are told together uh, isn't because that's the way history unfolded. Um, as you well know, the uh, evangelists uh, didn't write history, they wrote theology. So there was a reason that Mark wanted these two to be told at the same time. Uh, so one must look for a common denominator, I would think. And in this case, the common denominator appears to me, anyway, to be skepticism. The hometown folks are skeptical of Jesus, and although not everyone. And the, and the towns visited by the apostles, by the disciples turned into apostles, are some, some skeptical, some not. And in fact, you find that throughout the Gospels, that uh, often the, the, there'll be a little postscript, a parenthetical expression. Many believed, but some did not. Some were skeptical. I've thought a lot about skepticism in our age. Perhaps you have too. We live in a skeptical age, if you think about it. Generally speaking, people are skeptical about big business, big government, big church for that matter. There's a, there's a certain distance between 
institutions, even the most precious of our institutions, and the people. I think there are legitimate reasons for this. Um, and, and I don't want to belabor the point, but um, es essentially, uh, there's, a, there's a feeling, at least in Western Europe and the United States, North America, that modernity fa has failed us. The modern age, let's just call it the 20th century, promised um, uh, prosperity, the end of warfare as we know it, human happiness, and none of those things have really materialized, have they? The war to end all war simply began a whole bunch of other ones. You can see this skepticism uh, in, in just about every area of human endeavor. You certainly see it in literature, in music, in art. I'll just give you one example, and there are many more. We may end up talking about this again sometime. Uh, the great novel of the 20th, of the, uh, of the 19th century, by virtual, virtually unanimous opinion, is Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn's a fantastic novel. Uh, it's a story, you know the story, everybody's read the story, right? You, it's the story of Huck Finn who uh, leaves the comfort of his home, which might be seen, to, which was seen by him as confining, and floats down the Mississippi River to a new life, accompanied by the runaway slave Jim. It's, it's really the story of America moving out of its adolescence into its maturity, with the caveat that America can never be mature unless it finds the same kind of friendship, reconciliation, with formerly enslaved Americans as Huck does with Jim in that wonderful book. It's a book full of hope. They light out for the West is the way the book ends, for the new, the new um, America, so to speak. It's a book full of promise. It's just a great, great novel. I don't know what the great novel of the 20th century is, but if you ask Harold Bloom, Harold Bloom is, uh, you know this, I guess, is a uh, professor of uh, literature at Yale. The, he's, he's the smartest man in any room. He's, he's written more books than we all have time to read, and they're all fantastic. Harold Bloom says the great uh, novel of the, uh, of the 20th century is Prime Meridian written by Cormac McCarthy. Anybody ever read that one? You've read something by Cormac McCarthy, I'll bet. And you know that his work is pretty dark. Prime Meridian is the darkest novel I have ever read in my life. If you really want to get depressed, read Prime Meridian. It's, it's not, it's, it's not a, a spoiler to tell you that the way the book ends is with evil, victorious, over good, and gleeful about it. It's just awful. But it's brilliant, too. 
that uh, simply because it describes, you know, if you know McCarthy, you know all his stories are set in the, in the Southwest. And it describes a, a series of events in the Southwest that just can't ever seem to get resolved. Kind of like the way America has trouble resolving one issue after the next. At least that's the way McCarthy would see it. So we live, I don't want to belabor the point, but we live in a skeptical age. And I guess the skepticism comes from a failure of trust. A failure of trust in our, our, our most important, most precious institutions. Uh, and I include the church in that. We, the church has not, always, has not always been faithful to everyone all the time. And, and, and in many instances has failed children has failed minorities, has failed people that the church ought to be standing with all the time. And so it's well documented that uh, membership in the church in America, and even more so in Europe, is uh, in decline. The, the, uh, uh, la the, the, the latest Pew poll, which is now about three or four years old, said that, it, that uh, of the sample they took, 29% of the respondents said they had no religious affiliation whatsoever. Almost a third of the people they, they polled said they didn't belong to any organized religion at all. So, that, so that's another sign that, that there are a lot of people skeptical about the church. You know, it isn't the case that all over Washington, D.C., people are clutching their cell phones, hoping someone from St. John's will call them and invite them to church. It's, it's, just, it's, just not the, it's just not the case. And so, in a sense, that means we have to do something different. We have to get a little dusty, maybe, like those apostles. And that then raises the question for us, what can we learn from these from the, these, this gospel lesson that we read this morning that would help us in this skeptical period. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. He sent them two by two because it's tough work, not something you'd want to do alone. The message is not an easy message. It's a hard message and was particularly hard in those days because it was a new thing. The idea that you should love one another notwithstanding your background or your influence or who you are or who you choose to love. You should love, you have to reach across all those barriers, Jesus said. And it didn't necessarily go over well. But they went out two by two. They didn't have a, um, a uh, church growth strategy. They didn't have any diocesan support. They just went. And they were told to travel lightly. I take that to mean that they had to hold their opinions lightly. They had to be careful about who they, how they, how they talked, who they talked to, who, would, who, who, who might they be able to work with and who not. I have a, uh, a brother-in-law who I, who I have a great relationship with. But he never misses an opportunity to say to me that he doesn't believe in God. 
everybody, sh every priest should have a brother-in-law like mine. <laughs> and I usually say back to him something like, well, perhaps I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. And that's an invitation for a conversation. And every time that I say something like that, he changes the subject because he really doesn't want to talk about it. And, I, and, and that's okay. I don't need to try to convince him. I don't need to hit him over the head with a baseball bat or yell at him with a bullhorn. I need to befriend him, to continue to befriend him. And that's the way we do it, isn't it? We don't change the world by blog posts and, and uh, and uh, accumulating Facebook friends, or by marching up and down H Street with a sandwich board. I think we're much smarter than that. I think the disciples were much smarter than that. The fault isn't, the, the, the reason people aren't coming to church has nothing to do with rising secularism or, or swim teams on Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. Perhaps we need to be a little dustier than we are. Perhaps we need to help people see the world a little bit different. It's hard. The way of Jesus isn't the easy way. You, know, you have to go the extra mile, which simply means you ha we have to learn to put our own interests aside in the interest of others have to turn the other cheek, not because we're timid, but because there's such a thing as forgiveness. And of course, we have to love people who won't necessarily love us back. So if we do all those things, if we're willing to subordinate our own interests to the interests of others as a practice, we can, in fact, make a difference. We do, you do, every day make a difference in just that way. Not everybody gets it. Not everybody's gonna get it. But that doesn't mean that we're gonna, that we need to distance ourselves from, from, from those people. It means we, like my brother-in-law, we need to stay with them and just continuing to be faithful to the way that Jesus has shown us. We do this not with extravagant gestures, but in the ordinary conduct of our lives. And when we live that way, we don't do it to earn God's favor, although we hope we might, I suppose. We do that, we live that way because our little corner of the cosmos will be better off because of our kindness, because of our compassion, because of our generosity of spirit, because of our love, notwithstanding their skepticism. Amen. <laughs>